My name's Marta Gilliland. I'm one of the pastors here. If you don't know who I am, I don't um, often preach. Normally it's Garrett and Dan. But um, today I would like to um, share some words with you. We're starting a series on emotionally healthy church. And Chris kind of touched on it a little bit during worship in, in that we gather together here on Sundays as one in, um, under a story of God in a, in a like-minded story. And that story is super powerful. There's nothing like the story of God. And oftentimes, we as Christians might interpret that to mean this scripture. And it is scripture. The story of God is scripture. But the story of God is also us. And um, sometimes we miss that. So hopefully, when we talk about the emotionally healthy church, we're talking about the emotionally healthy people that fill that emotionally healthy church. And um, the counselors say, amen, right? <laughs> All the counselors in the office, in the audience. Um, to think about and to stop and think about how the story of God as we gather here together and how the church affects us emotionally, affects us spiritually. Because we don't believe here at Lakeland that it's two separate things. That you can have an emotional life that is, you know, going to crazy town and off your rocker and that there's not something spiritual actually happening. We're not separated in our lives, in our bodies, in our minds, in our hearts. It's all one. And because we come together under a narrative and a story of God, I'm going to draw kind of a starting place here. God has always been. I can't draw y'all. Just telling y'all right now. I can't draw. If you can't see this, move on forward. If you don't understand, I'm going to explain it to you. I'm trying to explain eternity, so drawing it's even harder, okay? So eternity, God has always been. God will always be. And the story of God, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go a little smaller here. The story of God has always been and will always be, okay? We were created in the image of God after God was. God was and always has been. So we were created as humans somewhere around here. Again, not to scale. Eternity is not to scale, okay? Stay, stay with me here. Okay, so our stories enter somewhere in there as human beings, but our individual stories come much later. And the stories that are in the Bible all kind of go around that um, arc there. Um, we all have a story. Let me, uh, let me give you a quote here. Winds in the east, mist coming in, like something is brewing, about to begin. Can't put my finger on what lies in store, but I fear what's to happen. It's all happened before. Anyone know where that's from? Mary Poppins. Mary Poppins, very good. That was one of my very best, favorite, favorite movies when I was growing up. And if you guys saw Saving Mr. Banks lately, I don't know if you guys saw that movie, that movie was the story about the story, okay? It was a story about P.L. Travers who knew her story as Mary Poppins. She was extremely attached to the story of Mary Poppins. And she and Walt Disney are rumored to hate each other, although the movie didn't show them as that contentious. But there's a very poignant scene at the end of it where he promises her that he will save Mr. Banks. Her story is her own story, and she's so attached to making her father 
become redeemed in the story because her father's uh, alcoholic and she felt her whole life that she should have saved him. The sad story about P.L. Travers is if you read a little bit more about her, um, she never really does come to terms with this. It's, told, it's said that the movie she thought was horrendous. It was, she hated the little penguins and how Walt Disney seemed to portray her story. And um, she ended up dying. She ha adopted a son, but she ended up dying alone. And so it makes me always wonder about this story that I saw and loved as a child and then saw so much deeper as an adult. You just have to watch this because you'll see so many different themes go through as an adult. A lost childhood, parents that weren't um, available. And um, how poignant it was and it always made me wonder, did she get it or did she not? If she died alone, did she ever get, was she still attached to that childhood story? And then I think, how attached are we emotionally to our childhood stories? And, and yet, how does that compare to the story of God? Like I said, there are many good, really, really great theologians and people who know scripture inside and out that often come into my office and then when I start asking them, what's the videotape in your head that's going on? It's entirely different than what they even knew about. It always seems to be surprising to them and to me. I always ask that question, what's the videotape in your head? Because there's some story there that people are generally attached to. I know I am, and I know that I'm often surprised by it. Um, and so, to talk about emotionally healthy church and emotionally healthy people, we have to get to that videotape, that story that we all listen to in our heads. Um, it's interesting that the script writers chose that winds in the east, mist coming in, something's brewing, about to begin. Can't put my finger on what lies in store, but I fear what's to happen has all happened before. That wasn't in her novel. And as I worked with her, I mean, she was so nitpicky on even just the bare minimum of the cherry lane and the way the, tree, the trees looked on outside. The thought that fear was to happen has already happened before, I think, isn't that just true of our own lives is that we all sort of protect our stories because we're afraid of what's gonna happen has happened before. Psychologists call this the Johari window. It's, I'm loosely tying this together, so if you're a psychologist, help me out here. Um, the Johari window is about a blind spot, something that we have attached ourselves to or that we don't even know that we've attached ourselves to something that, um, that we can't see in our lives. And, and the diagrams up here, if you look this up, it's called a Johari window and it's often pictured differently, but this is basically what it means. There's an area of our lives that are known by others and are known by ourselves. <clears throat> That's that blue spot. That's arena. We know we have brown hair. We know we have what we look like. Others know it. That's the open area. The um, area that's in the green there is unknown by others. The air that is known by the self but is unknown by others is called the facade. That's all the secrets we keep about ourselves that we don't want anyone to know. We put on a happy face about. A lot of that is our childhood stories. Sometimes we twist those or we don't want people to know about them. Sometimes it's just something that we're just like, oh, I don't want someone to know that I eat out every week this week. <laughs> you know, I eat out every week, every night this week. 
Um, the unknown spot is the brown spot. It's not known by us. It's not known by everyone else. Only God knows that area. It's a hidden area. It's um, revealed over time. Sometimes it's never revealed. We go through our lives and it's just unknown about ourselves. Um, and then there's that blind spot area, that red spot. That God is, that's the area that God often works in our lives. It's known by everyone else and somehow we don't even see it. Um, I'm going to show it to you in the story of David. So somewhere in um, history, you have creation, you have the Pentateuch, Genesis, and then the five books of the Pentateuch, and then you have the story of David in First and Second Samuel. After um, the people of God wanted a, a king, they chose Saul, and they, wanted, they kept begging God for a king. God gave them Saul. Saul was a bad king. So they wanted another king, and God chose David. And, and the story goes, if you guys know anything about David and Goliath, he was a poor shepherd boy. He was not the one that would look like a king. He was um, small and he defeated Goliath by chance really, but he was definitely the underdog. But God saw him as a man after his own heart. And there's a famous line in I think first Samuel that he says, God looks at the, a man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So David has always been known in scripture as a man after God's own heart. Unfortunately, after he becomes king, he has this huge blind spot. He gets involved in an affair with Bathsheba. She becomes pregnant. And not only that, but he arranges for Bathsheba's husband to be killed in um, battle. So it gets all tangled up there. And for some reason, he's just unable to see what's happening, okay? He's just seeing the next five minutes in front of him and not that blind spot. So we're gonna meet him here in 2 Samuel in verse 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan's a prophet, not necessarily his friend, a prophet. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then David said to Nathan, you are that man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah, and if this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? This is really heavy scripture. It's a really heavy story of a prophet telling a, a man after God's own heart the blind spot in his life. Ugh. I hate when this happens to me. It is like, 
Lord, is it I, Lord? You know, I'm the one. I'm sure that I'm not the only one in here that has been in the spot where God has said something. It's usually the thing that I'm most critical of, right? The thing that I sit there and I criticize the most is usually the blind spot that God is saying, ah, it's you, Marta. You are that woman or man. The story of David gets immediately darker. Bathsheba loses the child that she's um, carrying. The child is born and dies. And David is given a choice. As are we all when when we are presented with our blind spots. We can run away and uh, continue on in our blind spots, or we can run toward God, and we can run into that blind spot no matter how uncomfortable. I don't wanna go into that blind spot because it really is painful, but um, it, it is one of those choices. David chooses to run toward God, and we are the beneficiaries of that um, choice. Most of the Psalms that David writes, we read and pray in weddings and funerals. Those prayers and those Psalms are the Psalms of David after this. Um, In Psalm 139, 23, 24, he writes, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David's story is a, an example for us. It's not just a cautionary tale. He is a man of God, a man of God that made very bad decisions, but also followed God, both the good and the bad. The whole story matters. The whole story matters to us because we're able to see it. Just like David and Nathan, knowing our own stories and listening to other stories allows God to reveal himself to us. The gospels, all all the parables that Jesus told us, what are they? They are stories. Some of the people that Jesus was speaking to, they were like, we don't understand that story. They, sometimes we read it, we're like, we don't understand that story. Those stories are meant to tell us something about ourselves that we don't yet quite understand. Sometimes we want to put it into two categories. We want to put it into right and to wrong. And sometimes Jesus says that, just go and sin no more. That's, that's okay. And sometimes he says, look at it differently. Look at the story of God differently. Look at yourselves differently. Look at the people around you differently. Be with the other and listen. Look, watch, listen. Whenever we're feeling hopeless, destitute, demoralized, and just done, the answer is always in the unexpected, right? It's always in the differently, looking differently. Because if it were obvious, we probably wouldn't be in the predicament that we were in. We would just be out of it and fix it right away. But whenever we're in that moment that we just don't know, that's where Jesus says, yeah, you don't. There's a blind spot. Jesus calls us to live into an alternate narrative, a different one, one that we haven't yet thought of, a kingdom story. He said, I came that you might live in abundance. 
And I've heard people use that verse. I came that you might have life, John 10, 10, and, and that you might have it to the full as a, a story about money. And um, I couldn't disagree. I couldn't disagree anymore. That's, that is about living in abundance, not living in scarcity, not living in fear. It's not about money. It's about how we view our lives and the amount of consciousness we give to our stories. When Jesus died, sorry, that cross is crooked, and rose again, our lives, our stories were changed. Our lives were redeemed. Is that the narrative in the videotape that we have in our lives? It's a struggle. Sometimes it's not mine. Um, in the TED Talk, The Danger of a Single Story, I'll post the whole um, video to the Facebook link um, later today. But the Nigerian author, Chimamanda Adichie, she, she has a TED Talk called The Danger of the Single Story. And she says this, show up people is one thing, and one thing over and over again, and this is what they become. And this is what we see when cultures and churches and families have only one story that they go by, even if it's just one part of the scripture story. Even if you just go by the Old Testament, then you're not getting the full redemptive story, right? Even if you just go by um, just the cross story, then you miss all of the Old Testament. So when the, the danger of the single story is that it narrows us and it keeps us in that fearful life, not that abundant life. Um, I know that there was great a bit of debate over the Ferguson issue this summer in St. Louis, but the truth is, is that there's a, there was a story happening there well before the shooting. There was a story going on in many of those lives. They were listening to something, and we listen to something every day about people groups that we don't even know that we're listening to. It's a blind spot that we have no idea that we're doing. Um, Whatever your opinion on that was, what or is, know that we're listening to a story when we're listening to it, and, and be careful when you're only listening to one side of it. When we narrow ourselves to one single story, we become that story. Stories are that powerful. And what stories we eliminate from hearing or refuse from hearing, they're equally as damaging. When we only listen to an American view of Christianity, or our family of origins view of Christianity, or the white person's view of Christianity, or only the male view of Christianity, or even the only female view of Christianity, um, or the gospel, we run the danger of just that single story. We run the danger of staying in that blind spot and never hearing a larger narrative that Jesus called us into in the first place. The larger narrative, and I'm not talking about pluralism, like every, you know, any way you go is the right way. I'm talking about the kingdom way, the way of Jesus. Um, listen to this quote by Richard Rohr, Father Richard Rohr, a Franciscan priest. He says, it's always an encounter with otherness that chains, changes me. If I'm not open to the beyond me, I'm in trouble. Without the other, we are all trapped in, per, in a perpetual hall of mirrors that only validates and deepens our limited and already existing worldviews. We, as Christians, don't have to live in fear. 
we can be open to other worldviews and other stories. When we live by the kingdom story, other stories don't make us fearful. This is why my children are exposed to a lot. My poor son still um, is mad at me because I made him go to a Veronica's Voice um, presentation when he was 14. He's like, whoa, mom, that was a lot of information. <laughs> but I'm like, hey, that's a story he needs to hear because he's hearing the bikini um, version of Sports Illustrated story all the time, right? So exposing our children to other stories and showing them in culture and showing them the kingdom of God, that's important. One of the most stretching things has been for me, um, being part of the Associated Ministerial Order. This is a group of local pastors who gather together for accountability. And I will be honest, it's the last thing I ever wanna do. Um, those guys have like IQs that are like 20 to 30 points higher than mine. And their spirituality and their prayer lives are much more disciplined than mine. And sometimes I am sitting there in the conversation and I'm completely lost. Sometimes I keep up though, I'm kind of proud of myself on that one. Um, but I never feel understood. I never feel smart and I never feel super spiritual and I never feel understood. I'm the only female in there but I'm always stretched. I'm always stretched. I always grow whenever I'm with those guys. I'm uncomfortable, but I'm stretched. And what they do is they remind me about the story of God. And it stretches me about things that I never even knew about. And they also tell me, hey Marta, here's your story. And as you tell your story, here are the ups and downs. And as I share my story with them, they say, oh, Jesus is there too. Here are the redeeming parts of your story. And they remind me that I bear the image of God, the Imago Dei. And that's how it works when you live in community. As you share your story and as others share them with you, your blind start spots start to be revealed. In my Listen to My Life class, people always come into the class and think, I'm not telling my story. I'm not telling that deep, dark part of my story. And I said, that's okay, don't tell, because I can't promise you that it'll be safe. So don't tell. You know it, God knows it. Keep it to yourself if you want to. But here's what happens. People start to share parts of their story, and then they start to share a little bit more and then they start to share parts of their lives that are redeeming or where Christ entered their lives or where the kingdom story entered their lives. And I hear them say things like, oh, I, I remembered I was a good mom. I had forgotten that. Or they say, I had so many people invest in my life even though my parents were kind of crappy. Or they say, oh, there's so much chaos in my house, so I would go to my room and I'd read all the time. And in that, I saw redemption. And I say, that's a story. God is there. He is working through our lives through it all. He is there in the bedroom of a six-year-old as she reads, as much as he is working through the teenage boy's life who's organizing some sort of film that he is so proud of. 
God is working through everybody's lives at that time. And that is when people start to get really emotional. It's rarely the times that they're trying to hide. It's the times that they see God working through them. Sharing our stories are that powerful. And listening to someone else's story is even more powerful to sit there and to be able to say, that was God. That was God in your life. That's the power we have in each other's lives. So um, I told you that I like to um, watch stories and listen to stories, and I'm kind of on a documentary kick, so I'm going to kind of impose this on you. I've been watching documentaries. I've watched a lot of crazy lady ones. I can tell you about that later. But this one's really inspiring. This one's called G-Dog, and it's about Father Gregory. He's a Jesuit priest, and he left the priesthood to work with the inner-city gang members to... Um, uh, Gosh, this, this, you really have to watch it. It's on Netflix. It's such an amazing story of this father, this priest, who comes into their lives, and he tries to tell them the story of the kingdom of God. And what they do is they replace that story of their lives and listen to what their stories are. Their stories are that they're going to die or be in jail probably by the age of 17. They have no parental support. They're living in poverty. They all have... The only way they can get money or, or any kind of survival skills is through gangbanging or drugs. So um, we'll show the video and you can see some of the things that they do. He started an industry and he's- So about three months later, I get a phone call from one of- Go ahead, sorry. So about three months later, I get a phone call from one of her staffers at the White House. And she says, Mrs. Bush is having a conference in Washington, D.C. called Helping America's Youth. She'd like you to speak at it. And I said, I'd be honored to. Oh, by the way, Mrs. Bush would like you to bring three homies with you. <laughs> now, whether Laura Bush used the H word, I don't think I'm certain. Uh, and afterwards, a select group of participants will be invited in uh, to the White House for dinner. Now, certainly crooks have resided in this house before. <laughs> may well be the first time gang members have ever spoken So I, you know, I picked three guys that if we're here to go to central casting and say, please send me three menacing looking gang members, it might be these three guys, just, just to mess with the White House a little bit. So Gus, Herbie, and Gabriel, and I picked them, been to prison, tattooed, and I thought, well, God, we're going to the White House for dinner. We can't exactly, you guys can't wear size 85 waist tickets. You know? so, so we go to men's warehouse, you know, you're gonna like the way you look, I guarantee it. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we walk into the White House after the conference for dinner, and they're in their suits and their tattoos, and they're looking sharp, and their butler's walking down the, the hallway with trays of long stemmed glasses of white wine, and homies are snatching those puppies as quickly as they can. <laughs> and I know every room has an elegant combo, and then the gold room, which is where the buffet is. The most gourmet food I've ever had in my life. I went back like eight times, you know. <laughs> Gabriel's standing next to me and he discovers these potatoes cut lengthwise with a hole carefully bore out in the middle, stuffed with caviar and sprigachai. <laughs> he pops one of those suckers into his mouth and <laughs> spits it out into a napkin. It tastes nasty. <laughs> Let's just say he wasn't using his inside voice. <laughs> the next day we were flying home and we were mid-country and Gabriel says, I gotta go to the baño. 
I go leaflets at the back of the plane. 45 minutes later, he comes back and says, Oye, cabrón, que pasó? I thought you fell in, okay. <laughs> oh, oh, I was just talking to that lady back there. And I turn around and I see the flight attendant standing by herself at the back of the plane. I made her cry. I hope that's okay. I go, well, Gabriel, it might depend on what you actually said to her. <laughs> well, you know, she, she saw my homeboy industry shirt and she saw my tattoos. I don't know. She asked me a gang of questions. So I gave her a tour of the office. At 34,000 feet, Gabriel walks this woman through the office, introduces her to the job developers, hands her goggles so she can watch tattoos being removed, gives her a hairnet so she can watch enemy gang members bake bread together. Then I told her last night, we made history. For the first time in the history of this country, gang members walked into the White House. We had dinner there. I told her the food tasted nasty. <laughs> And she cried. I say, well, Miko, what you expect? She just caught a glimpse of you. She saw that you are somebody. She recognized you as the shape of God's heart. People cry sometimes when they see that. And suddenly kinship so quickly, two souls feeling their worth flight attendant gang member at 34,000 feet. Exactly what God had in mind. That's how it works. When we share our stories. So what about you? I think if um, a homie in L.A. can swap out their story of murder and drugs and that all that that's all they know from the birth to seven to age of 17 um, then we can also think about our stories um, what's the videotape in your story in the head is it one that God says something about you is it emotionally and spiritually healthy do you even know your story and do you know how it fits in the larger narrative of God do you see the image of God in yourself? The Imago Day is what it's called. Maybe you need a Nathan. And note that Dan gave me a hard time last week or a couple of weeks ago because he said that I said that church is a place for friends. Let me clarify. <laughs> I hope you do find friends here. I found my best friends here. But I hope you find a Nathan. I think we need prophets in our lives. We need people who tell us stories that help us to move into those blind spots. We need the other more than we need our friends. Our friends don't often tell us the truth. I don't want to tell people often those things because we love each other. We're often the same. We choose friends that are the same, so we, don't, we have the same blind, blind spots. If you don't have that other, chances are you don't have a Nathan. And if you don't have that other, I'm not sure you can be a Nathan. Maybe you need to be a Nathan to someone else, to speak the truth of God about someone's life, to say, I saw God in you when you did this or when you did that. Maybe you're doing that already.
because I do see that happen all the time around here at Lakeland. I see it when people are talking in the lobby. I see it when people are having a conversation in the hospital waiting for someone else to get well um, or waiting for a small group that shows up at a group member's hospital bed when they start chemotherapy with balloons and, and signs to help her. I see it when we are with the other, when we're with kids, whether we're with our kids here, other kids in kid zone, we say, I'm gonna be with another person's kid, not my own. Or when we partner with Pro Day and we say, I'm gonna be with the at-risk youth in, this, in the local community. Or even when we're working, tearing down a house at Eastland, and we tell each other our stories and why it's important to be in the inner city. That's working and hearing the story of the other. Anytime we're together in community, we're already bearing the image of God because you were created in the image of God, whether you really believe it or not. Whether you're a David or a Nathan or a priest or a homie or a pastor or a Lisa at Suburbanite or a mom, a single person or a child, you bear the image of God, whether you recognize it or not. Our job is to recognize it and respond. And our stories aren't over yet. In fact, nothing stops our stories, nothing. They go on for eternity. If you go to a memorial service or you talk to someone who's lost a loved one and ask them to tell you a story about that loved one, they still have a story about them, they have many. Our stories live on well beyond our lives. So I can think of no better way than to end with actually hearing someone's story. And so I've asked Lisa Sollers to come up and share her story. I think you'll find similar elements because that's how God works in our lives. So I'll get it out of the way. My name is Lisa and this is my story. I have had a blind spot in regards to God's love for me and his plan for me for a very, very long time. When I talked to others, I would easily see God's plan for them and see that God loved them. They had husbands, kids, grandkids, and I didn't have any of those things, and I didn't see them on my horizon either. In my recovery from a very difficult loss, I found Mercy Street, and I began working steps and learning about truly letting go. For me, that meant letting go of some of my preconceived notions of what my plan should be, letting go of jealousy of what others had, and facing pain head on instead of avoiding it or even denying that it existed. It also involved setting some healthy boundaries in regards to my family and definitely with the men I had chosen in my past or ones that would be an option in the present. I had to believe and truly believed that God would restore me and that he would walk with me in some very dark places. I also had to slip and fall and know that he would pick me up and walk with me. I went to meetings with people who felt like they needed to take a similar, deeper journey. I had to confess to others who were safe, my feelings, the happiest and the darkest ones. I confessed defects in my character and how I had hurt others. I learned a lot more about myself by listening to other people's stories. I would listen without interrupting or helping, which is very hard for me because I like to talk and I also like to fix people. I saw things in them that were definitely in me as well. And I realized that we are all a lot more alike than I had thought we were. And I also found out I wasn't alone. 
I recently had a very healing moment in regards to my problem, like that, with no kids. I've taught preschool too here at Lakeland for many years and I have loved on a lot of your kids for a lot of years. And I have recently grieved over some kids going to kindergarten, some a lot more than others. I have been blessed to love on my nieces and nephews for a very long time as well, and I have other people's kids that are my friends' kids that are like my nieces and nephews, and I have really been blessed with some special relationships with them as well. I'm very grateful, but I still do struggle with not having kids of my own. I recently had an incident that woke me up to the gift that God had already given me without me knowing it. I'm a nurse. And last year, I work in the inner city. And last year, I met a kid from the inner city who had broken his leg during a football game. And it was a very serious injury. And he was there for about two or three weeks, and I would see him frequently. Um, I told him that if he went to play football again, I would come and watch him. And last Saturday, I did that. I went to a field that they play on Saturdays because they don't have lights. And they don't even own their whole field. They just own half of it and the nuns own the other 50 yards of it. So I'm like, that's weird. Um, <laughs> good thing they're letting them use it. So I told him I was coming, but at the half, the kids go to the locker room, and he saw me, and he's huge. And just the look on his face and the joy, and he hugged me, and he almost picked me up. He's very big. And I just was like... That's, he, that's my healing I'm seeing in his face. It's, it was something. His family isn't, wasn't able to go because of their job and their finances. And so I was the person that was there to see him. And by me just showing up, it turned out to be a humongous deal. And I could see in his face, in his sweet face, some of the same realizations that I've had about walking through recovery and people showing up for me. And that I really do matter. Those who don't know me, please know that I love football a lot, but this game that I watched out there that day was more like church to me, um, really a lot more like church. God's plan is not always my plan, but it is a good one, and it's, a and it's an incredible plan. And he really does love me so much more than I thought he did, and he loves me that much so that I can love others. My name is Lisa, and that's my story. So there's the gospel. There it is, that someone realizes their redemption story and is able to be the um, face of God to someone else in, in the other, in, in unexpected ways in the story of kingdom. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, who we also sit with him at the right hand of the throne of God as believers. Go in peace.